her Master's of Divinity and Doctorate in Ministry Degrees. She and her husband David have two beautiful daughters, Danielle and Jessica, and an awesome son-in-law named Luke, Daniel's husband. She says all of us are foodies, gym rats, and love to travel. Her favorite passage is Mark 8, 34b through verse 35. If any of you wants to be a follower, you must forget about yourself. You must take up your cross and follow me, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel will save it. Help me welcome Dr. Marlinda Ireland. Come on, would you give Jesus that praise? We serve an awesome God. It is such an honor and a pleasure and a joy to be in Indiana this morning. Uh, yeah, I am from New Jersey, and uh, I don't flip over tables, but I, I definitely am a Jersey girl. You met my other half last night. Um, he is the, the one I love after my Savior, Jesus Christ. I, and I do feel like I'm married up, y'all. I feel like I'm married up just a little bit. Uh, he's just such a, a wonderful husband and father, and I'm just grateful that the Lord uh, has brought us together. Before I get into the Word today, I would like to uh, share a little something the Lord placed, placed on my heart last night as, as we were sitting there and just being fed and being nurtured. Two words. Uh, actually, three words I heard the Lord say over CMI. He said, racial reconciliation, more than three words, for the next generation. Racial reconciliation for the next generation. In other words, CMI has brought this organization, this fellowship of, of folks, to this place with wisdom, with grace, with power, with vision. And part of the next chapter of CMI is this thing, reconciliation. That's part of the next chapter. I know uh, you're going to work through that. You're going to pray through that, what all of that means and what all of that looks like. But a, but a part of that part is going to be folks like that, young people who are seeing it through fresh eyes, because our generation, I'll be 50, none of your business, 50 something, none of your business, next year, or next, next month rather, um, going into 57 years old, okay, so my parents who are still alive in their 80s, my generation, we've experienced racial issues on one plane, in one way, uh, civil rights movement, affirmative action, coming down into the, the 70s, 70s and the 60s and 70s with racial riots and all of the tensions and all of the stuff theologically and emotionally and, and, and socially we had to work through. Those folks have not had to work through these things. Doesn't discount the, the work that has been done. Doesn't mean that those issues are settled. It simply means in this generation, the emphasis, the, the color of it, the, the tentacles of how it needs to be thought about from a theological and social standpoint is going to change. It'll, it still, as I love how they share, there still needs to be the identification of sin, whether it's from a sexual standpoint or a racial or prejudice standpoint, but are we able to work with people? For most of us from the previous generations, that's hard. Amen? If you can't say amen, say out. So CMI, to take this organization, this fellowship forward, Yes, wrestle. Wrestle. Don't let this be a nice conference this year. Oh, it's a good subject. It's something, you know, really relevant. Mm -mm. No, 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 no. Don't do that. I 
think as you've been praying over the last few months, you've seen that God is really dealing with your hearts about this. In order to thrive, we must finish. I can tell you after 35 years of, of ministry, David and I have had to make a lot of changes over the years. A lot of changes. If we hadn't made those changes, I can honestly say, we would not be thriving today. We would not be thriving today. So the Lord would say to you, daughter and son of the Most High God, I am anointing you. I am gracing you. I am gifting you. And I am calling you to be one of the voices in this nation and to this generation for racial reconciliation and reconciliation of many, many different principles. So take the lessons that you are learning. Take the grace that you sense. Take the struggle and the tension that you're experiencing and begin to write about it. Begin to blog about it. Begin to come up with phrases and approaches and uh, aspects of the truth that I am embedding in you and communicated to the world. And as you do, you will begin to see the, the tenor of the conversation change in your region and in our nation. Racial reconciliation is a spiritual problem. There are justice issues. There are social issues. There are all kinds of other issues that are peripheral to it, but it really is a spiritual problem. And you're beginning to see that. And so God anoints you today for this season, for this reason. There are many other callings in your life, but yes, this is one of the things God is calling you to do and calling you to be. He's calling you to be spearheads. He's calling you to be voices. He's calling you to be bold. There will be persecution. Surround yourself with a prayer team that will intercede and cover you, and you will be safe. Fear not, says the Lord. He is your God. If you are under the age of 32, would you stand, please? Anyone else? Awesome. Would you lift your hands? And the Lord anoints you today because in your generation, you cry for justice. You cry for this thing about uh, the issues of, of prejudice and, and abuse to be no more. But this morning, the Lord gives you wisdom he pours out on you grace. He pours out on you revelation, insight from the scriptures, revelation and insight from his word and by his spirit that you too will touch others. You too will be like seeds in this generation to bring about a new understanding of what it means to be one, of what peace means, of what justice means, of what the Holy Spirit can do through yielded vessels. So receive the grace of racial reconciliation today. Receive it, receive it, receive it, and watch what God will do. In Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Praise God. I don't know how long you've been sitting. Would you stand, though, for just a minute? Let's worship God. Again, I wish I could get into it more. I'm not going to get into it too much this morning, but this idea of, of breaking down walls, it's a spiritual thing because when you, when you break it all down, it's sin. It's a sin. And only God can change the heart. Only the Spirit of God can change the heart. And so we've got to make sure, and it's been already beautifully done, but that in this atmosphere over the next few days, we're, we're engaging the Holy Spirit. We're, we're reaching out. We're saying, okay, God, yeah, change my mind, but change my heart. God, change my heart. So let's just worship for a couple of minutes as I begin to share with you about the complexity of compassion. Father, we're just here this morning, and we're just so desperate. Lord, we see the issues in our nation. We see the issues in our churches. We see the issues in our neighborhoods. And God, we ask that you would break us down. Lord, that you would cause us to be captured with this, 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 this sense
sense of, of being one, uh, one people, one voice, one heart, one mind. God, we need you. We cannot do this in our own strength. We can't do it just with just preaching about social justice and making uh, uh, changes in the natural. God, it's got to be a spiritual thing. So, Lord, we ask you to bring down righteousness on us, oh God. Rain down righteousness like, oh Father, like the sun, that we can hear your voice this morning. We love you, Lord. We're so grateful for your presence here in this place. You give life. You are love. You bring light to the darkness. You give hope. You restore every heart that is broken. Declare it. Great are you, Lord. It's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise. Pour out our praise. It's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise to you only. You give life. You are loved out. You bring light to the darkness. You give hope. You restore every heart that is broken. Great are you, Lord. It's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise. Pour out our praise. It's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise. Pour out our praise. It's your breath. In our lungs, so we pour out our praise, pour out our praise, it's your breath. In our lungs, so we pour out our praise to you only. All the earth will shout your praise. Our hearts will cry, these bones will sing, say it. Great are you, Lord. Again, we say, all the earth will shout your praise. Our hearts will cry, these bones will sing. Great are you, Lord. All the earth, all the earth. All the earth will. Hearts. Ah, uh, yeah, sound good. Say great. Great are you, Lord. It's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise. Pour out our praise. It's in our lungs, so we, so we pour out our praise, pour out our praise, it's your breath. In our lungs, so we pour out our praise, pour out our praise, it's your breath. In our lungs, so we pour out our praise to you Worthy, worthy, worthy are you, Lord, beautiful God, wonderful Savior, glorious King. We worship you, we worship you, Lord. Glory and honor, wisdom and power be unto the Lamb, be unto the Lamb that was slain. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Hallelujah.
So Lord, we pray this morning that there would be a blessing upon the reading, the teaching, the receiving of your word. And everybody say, Amen. Amen. Bless the Lord. Would you join me in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10? I want to talk with you for a few minutes this morning about the complexity of compassion. The complexity of compassion. We're going to be reading from verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law, or the Torah, stood up to test or to trick Jesus. He said, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? Jesus replied, How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, Ah, you've answered correctly. Do this, and you'll live. But while he wanted to justify himself, and in other words, Jesus uh, recognized, and what we'll see is that this lawyer, this uh, scholar in the Torah, really wanted Jesus to pat him on the back. He wanted a pat on. He wanted to know that he was doing all right. So he says, but he wanted to justify himself. Verse 29. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? He wanted Jesus to say the same thing that he had just said to him. Oh, you know the answer, and you're doing it, so just keep doing that, and you'll be fine. And so Jesus doesn't answer that question. In verse 30 says, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now the Jerusalem-Jericho road, I don't know if you know this, but it was a dangerous road. It was a road where it wasn't uncommon for someone to be beaten, for someone to be uh, hurt, for someone to be taken advantage of. And he says a man was going down to the Jerusalem-Jericho road, and when he then was attacked by robbers, they stripped him naked, stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and he went away, leaving him dead. And scholars say that in telling this little parable, Jesus was actually saying to the lawyer, imagine this man was you. He's actually saying, I want you, lawyer, to imagine that you were going down the Jericho Road and that you were beaten. Now keep in mind the lawyer's question, who's my neighbor? And you were beaten and you were then robbed of all of your clothes, and you were taken of everything that you own. Imagine that that was you. And then he goes on with the story. He says, the priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. So in essence, Jesus is saying, you're in the ditch. You're on the side of the road. And the priest and the Levite that you tend to trust as, a, as a, one who's a scholar of the law, who, has, who you feel so justified by having this neighborhood and this community around you, imagine that they walk by you. So in other words, Jesus is saying the question is not, who is my neighbor? The question is, who will be neighborly towards me? Will the people who are in my neighborhood be neighborhood, neighborly towards me? He goes on to say, but a Samaritan, the very one from their religious and social standpoint, they would have, as Jews, nothing to do with, But a Samaritan, as he traveled and came to where the man was, he saw him. He took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. 
almost done, verse 35. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, looked after them, and he said, when I return, I will reimburse you for an extra expense, you may, any extra expense you may have. Which of these do you think was neighborly to the man who fell into the hands of the robber? The expert in the law, the one who had, uh, he says, the one who had, one person says, compassion on him. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. And so for years, I have to say to you, I have misread this passage of Scripture. The goal of the Scripture is not so much to say, even though Jesus wraps it up with go and do likewise, but the real beneath the surface, how many of you know sometimes we can miss the beneath the surface interpretation, is that we are not to see ourselves as the Samaritan. We are to deal with ourselves as though we were the lawyer. That's the real issue that Jesus wants to turn the knife into. And so, as that lawyer, we all, and I include myself in this definition, we all have looked and said, am I supposed to be neighborly to that person? When expecting them to be neighborly toward us. And so, in order for us, I believe, to get to this place, where we are able to have the compassion that the Samaritan had as the lawyers that we are, having created our own safe neighborhoods. And I'm not even saying neighborhoods in the, in the geographical sense, but those who we associate with, those we, who we feel safe with, those who we feel will rescue us. There comes this issue of the complexity of compassion. Compassion is a complex thing in our nation today. It's a complex issue when it comes to racial tension. Like, who am I supposed to be compassionate towards? How do I deal with the fallacies, the fears, and the frustrations that put me at an arm's length when it comes to whether or not I feel safe enough to show compassion on the Jerusalem-Jericho road? This dangerous thing, this dangerous, these dangerous tensions that we experience, we are experiencing in our lives today. On our team, back at the church, we have 12 associate pastors. David is the lead pastor, one of the 12 associate pastors. Each one of those pastors has responsibility over hundreds or thousands of people. And two of our pastors are married, and they're uh, an interracial couple. The wife is white, and the husband is black. And the fear, Anthony and Barbara, I was talking to Anthony about this a couple of weeks ago. He said the greatest challenge that they had to go through and the greatest sense of fear that they uh, are aware of when they talk about their marriage is that blacks are afraid that their children will think then it's okay to marry someone other than a black person and that whites will think it's okay to marry someone other than a white person. He said, that's one of the greatest fears that people have, that parents have. And so when they talk about their relationship, and this is even in Christian settings, so that's a fear. And when they talk about this in, 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 in uh, marriage conferences and things like that, they have to unpack that. What the Bible teaches, that yeah, we talk about differences in race, but there's really only one race, the human race. If we look at it from a genetic standpoint, a, a, a cellular standpoint, but there are many cultures, there are many ethnicities. And the Bible teaches that God is the one who sets the standard for whether or not interracial marriage is okay. Think about Boaz and Ruth. I say intercultural multi-ethnic, Boaz and Ruth. Think about Moses and Sephora. There are examples throughout the scripture of how God used, and some will say, okay, well, God used it. God may not have sanctioned it, but he used it. All right, that's another conversation. But God gives us examples and, and, and insights 
into how he has created the human race and how there is this thing called compassion. So there are fears, there are fallacies, and there are frustrations that we all experience. My parents are from the South. I was, I, I call it baked in the South and born in the North. And so my parents, being Southerners, grew up, they're both about 80 years old, they grew up with Jim Crow. My grandfather was a sharecropper. And so I had first-hand knowledge of what it was like in those days and times for people of color or people who did not have even financial means uh, to, to live in those days and times. But when I visit them and I see the empty streets in South Carolina, because after the Civil Rights Movement, after the Civil War, uh, uh, many began to move north for greater opportunities. When I see that, I'm, I'm overwhelmed with the fact that the fears of the North and the South were fears that were based on an economic system. Now, me growing up in the North, I have no problem with anyone. Grew up. On our right, there, were, there was a, a white family. On our left, there was a Puerto Rican family. Across the street, there was an interracial couple. Down the street, there was a gay couple. So we had everything you could imagine on the little street that I grew up right outside of Atlantic City. And so I had no problem with anyone. But my problem, as I've discovered as I was preparing for this message, was that I've underestimated the problem. Because I didn't have a problem, and a lot of folks in your generation will not have a problem, they will underestimate the problem. And the Lord has had to grip me with the reality of the challenge. And so the fallacies, the fears, and the frustrations are the things that keep us down. And so in this passage, we're seeing that God is saying compassion is critical. Verse 37, the expert in the law replied, his eyes are open, the one who had compassion on him. He's saying that is the person who has the grace and what I want, to, I want to call today the DNA of a reconciler. The DNA of a reconciler. So what is compassion? Compassion alludes to kindness and sympathy, but there's something much deeper, something even more profoundly powerful in its meaning. The origin of the word helps us grasp the truth beneath and the significance of compassion. In the original language, it means to suffer with. It means to suffer with. In other words, it means to have mercy, which is like forgiveness. If you have mercy on someone, you let them off the hook, so to speak, in some way. I like to think of it that, you know, David and I, we watch Judge Judy a lot. And Judge Judy will beat her gavel, and not often will she show someone mercy, which means that they don't get what they do deserve. But when she does, it's an event. And so what, what we're seeing as we just unpack for a couple of minutes, what is actual compassion? It's complicated. It's complex. So yeah, it's mercy. It's forgiveness. It's also sympathy. Sympathy means that you can walk in someone else's shoes. It means you can take on their burden. You can suffer with them. Compassion is complex. Sympathy means you're able to go a mile in their shoes. It's also empathy. Compassion is empathy. With empathy, you put yourself in another's shoes as well, but you feel deeply what they feel. I like what I've seen in this definition of compassion as well. It also means to immerse oneself. And so I stole this sheet from the hotel. Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, clothe yourselves with compassion. And that clothing means to immerse yourself like in a garment. And the reality is that in order for us to cross over racial boundaries, in order for us to deal with our prejudices, our fears, 
our frustrations of what's going on with social justice or what may not be going on with social justice, or even if social justice is necessary, we're going to have to begin to have a sense of compassion. I don't think that racial issues are possible to be solved simply with social justice. It's a hard issue. It's a hard issue. And please hear me, I'm not blaming anyone. I'm not blaming anyone. I think we live in a fallen world. We live in a broken world. And so what has happened over the centuries, not just here in America, but all over the world. So I, I hope you don't feel as though I'm being accusatory. Please hear me, I am not. Again, I have no problems. God so graciously gave me the gift of growing up in a very diverse neighborhood and also the mission and the vision of our church. I was never hurt. I was never abused by anyone of another uh, color. I have no problem. But I've underestimated the problem because I've had no problem. But it's on the heart of God. You heard David tell the story last night. God shook him in the supermarket. Why can't it be like this in my house? Martin Luther King said it really well. 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in the nation. God dealt with Peter on that roof. God had to deal with Peter. Hear me. It's a heart problem. God had to open Peter's eyes. There needs to be revelation in order for this to change in our nation. I was so perplexed as I started studying and preparing for this. David's written the books on racial reconciliation, not me. But as I said, let me make sure I'm understanding where I am, my frustrations, my fears, my fallacies. And so I came to that understanding, and I was gripped to the heart. And so clothing yourself with compassion is step one of beating this thing that our nation has grappled with for decades now and centuries, and the world has grappled with for decades and centuries. Lawyers can't do it. The laws won't change it. Oh, it'll help. We need social justice. I'm not discounting that. But the true change, the true issue, the true solution will happen as we immerse ourselves in this thing called compassion. So let's break that down a little bit. The DNA of compassion, if you know anything about DNA, DNA is like a code in our bodies. It's like a, a thumb drive. And it carries the, the essence of who we are. Compassion has three parts, I think. Number one, it starts with the D. And write this down. There needs to be defining moments in your life if you want to carry compassion to the nation. You need to have defining moments. David had a defining moment in the supermarket. Some of you have had defining moments that even over the last 40 days as, you, as you've been fasting and praying about this. My defining moment happened one Sunday afternoon in a church in Hackensack, New Jersey. Yes, there is a Hackensack, New Jersey. I stood there as a college student, along with other college students, having rededicated my life to the Lord after backsliding my first couple of years in college. Don't judge me. I know some of you have done it too. But I stood there in this church. I, as I walked through the doors, it was about a 300-seat auditorium, and I looked to my right, and I saw Asians and Blacks and Whites and Latinos. I looked to my left. I saw people from Europe and other parts of the world. And as I just continued to scan the room, I could see a sea of diversity. Never had seen this before in my life. 
had grown up in a black Baptist church, had grown up uh, at times in a black Pentecostal church. To step into this full gospel sanctuary and to see all of these hands raised up, different colors, different ages, from different parts of the world, different parts of the city even, worshiping together, I was going away. I began to weep. I broke down. Because I began to see a vision of, this is what heaven is going to be like. This is what the Apostle John is talking about that he saw as he looked out into heaven. Every nation worshiping God. And God is simply saying to us as church leaders, bring heaven down to earth. But in order for that to happen, I really believe we've each got to have some defining moment in our lives where the issues begin. Now, it's a lifelong process because we have been so enculturated from a racial standpoint. I acknowledge that. But where the issues begin to be put into context, the context of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If Jesus came to save, to heal, to deliver every nation, every tribe, every tongue, then he has commissioned us to be part of that mission and part of that mission. We all know that. But until we begin to have some kind of a reality on a soul level, it's going to be simply a theory. That day, my heart began to be touched and impassioned. It was a defining moment for me in my ministry. Didn't know I was called to ministry at that point. But it began to be a defining moment for what the heart of God would do and look like in the context of the local church. Are you with me? And so there's got to be something. Maybe this weekend or this week is your defining moment. You don't create a defining moment. God kind of baptizes you in a defining moment. He arrests your attention. You begin to get mission and vision and understanding and passion and also a brokenness over the problem. Defining moment. Got to happen. There's got to be a shift. And it's got to be a God shift. It happens sovereignly, but in a sense of openness. My prayer is that whether it's last night or today or tomorrow or when you leave this place, that you would experience in some way, shape, or form as you go back into your context, that this would become a value for you because you've had some kind of an impact Hopefully there's been an impartation for God's hand on your life for this problem that is so serious in our day and our age. Are you with me? So the D, you need a defining moment. We all experience these defining moments in our life. The day we leave home, our first crush, our first car, the first time we get a job, the first time we lose a job, our, faith, our first paycheck. These things define us in some way because of new obligations and new opportunities. They shift our values. And on a corporate level, to perpetuate your values, you have to build them into your environment. If you're a leader... As we're all getting older, we're trying to hand the baton, baton off. Hopefully, we're doing the moonwalk back and allowing younger folks to come up and training them and pouring into them and challenging them and cultivating in them the very essence of what God has given us. But also, we're, and those are values, but also we're releasing them to do it in the way that they do it. So not only do you need to have a defining moment in order to see this, and as we're all in that second half of life here, you're going to have to cultivate, if you want to see this, continue to be taken forward in the people around you. Invite them into a journey towards a defining moment. 
Maybe there's a study that you do in your church when you get back on a Wednesday night or, uh, uh, or in your life group, your, your small group. Maybe over the course of six months, you begin to study what does God say about compassion? What has God said about uh, racial reconciliation? So that your people also begin to be changed because it has to start with the head and flow down to the body. Are you with me? Defining moments. It's the visions, the values, and the sense of purpose that hold and bind an organization together. You already have a story that, that your congregations know and that they identify and helps them to identify who they are. But now, expand that story. Are you with me? So number one, defining moments. Number two, we have to normalize compassion. We have to normalize compassion. So recently I was on a trip and we were in Uganda and Kenya. We got to visit some of the, the orphanages there. We had gone with Compassion International. And as we're there, I'm looking at these children. It's my first time in one of those orphanage, orphanages. I typically have stayed home with our girls, stayed home to hold down the fort uh, with the church. But this time, this year, I got to be boots on the ground to see where these children live in Africa and Uganda who have very little, they might earn less than $50, their families, on a yearly basis in U.S. dollars. And as I'm there, with Compassion International, my eyes began to be opened. And I began to see that the folks who work with these children day after day and year after year in a fantastic wonderful program that just doesn't give them spiritual information. It gives them nutrition and also uh, uh, training for vocation. And so they walk away from the compassion program fully equipped spiritually and socially and uh, economically to sustain all that has been poured into them. And it's all based on compassion. They go through this normalization of dealing with all of the issues that come with serving people who have been underserved. Serving people, they go through, it's a normal prep. It's a normal um, uh, uh, assertiveness that compassion has developed as an organization. And I have to tell you, I was convicted because my compassion is seasonal. Christmas time, going on other uh, uh, mission trips, that level of compassion, seasonal. And so my goal in this season of my life is to say, how can I make compassion a lens in these glasses that I wear? That when I'm walking down the street, that when I'm involved in some other kind of uh, 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 investment, whether it's our Christmas pro program. I'm just trying to break it down for us because we're in ministry. What program can I make sure I'm including the underserved? We have a, 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 a battered women's shelter in our church. How can I make sure that the women of color or the women who have been underserved in that shelter benefit in some way, shape, or form from the things that I do, the events I put on. How can I immerse myself in compassion? It's a daily, it's a daily dig. It's a daily assertion. How do I do that? So number one, there has to be some defining moments. Number two, I have to normalize it. I have to make it a part of my perspective of the world. See, that's the issue. Even when we think about what's happening on the southern border, or what we think about happening with uh, immigration from other parts of the world, the issue is, are we able to see beyond the fallacies about people? Because, listen to me, what you see on the news, you see the worst of the worst. You don't see the best of the best. And not everyone who's coming in is the worst of the worst. There's typically a percentage, just like any other people. Do you know that back in the uh, 40s and 50s and 30s when uh, Italians and Greeks 
were immigrating to the United States, they were not considered white. They were con- there was racial discrimination against them. And so the line is always moving. The line is always moving. When, when Teresa Judice of, of the Real Housewives of New Jersey flipped over that table, no one said, oh, look at that, 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 uh, that minority woman. No, they said, look at that Italian woman. She's crazy. The line is always moving. And so the normalization of compassion happens when we put these glasses on and we begin to see people as people and not as the stereotypes. I remember years ago I was invited um, to sing at Willow Creek for one of their, their events. And I had done what they had asked me to do, and then someone came up to me a little bit later and said, well, we're going to be doing this thing on racial reconciliation. Would you come and sing an old uh, spiritual for us at the end of this? I said, okay, well, I don't have any problem with old spirituals, but I can't sing an old spiritual. I don't have that kind of voice. I don't have those kind of riffs, you know? But they thought that for the color of my skin... Oh, she can do it. She can come up here and sing us some good old gospel. I love gospel. I gospel. I have a little bit, little bit, little bit, but I'm sure there's other folks in here. Like those ladies last night, I was watching them. I'm like, y'all go. They, they had it. Do we look at people in stereotypical ways and have expectations of them? When David describes himself, we used to have a, pro, a radio program years ago, and when people finally saw him, they said, oh, my God, I thought you were a white guy. He says if you take his DNA, it'll go up through Spokane, Washington, down through uh, some other place where you may not find many people of color, and that's, that's where his DNA is. So my heart is that we would begin where there's people coming from the borders of, of the South or some other place that we would not stereotype, but that we would put on the eyes and immerse ourselves in this sense of empathy, mercy, and compassion. I love what Colossians uh, chapter 3, verse uh, 12 says. Again, clothe yourselves with compassion. I just want to read that real quick. Here we go. And then we're going to be wrapping this up. And I want to just finish up with, with a brief time of prayer. Um, Therefore, Colossians 3.12, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. This is what the Lord Almighty said. Administer true justice, show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, or the foreigner, or the poor. Amen? D-N-A. And the A stands for accept the challenge. Accept the challenge. I share with you that I grew up in an area where there was a lot of diversity and that I underestimated the problem. And it's in this season that God has burdened me to accept the challenge of being a greater racial reconciler. And I have to tell you, I've struggled with it. I have fears. I'm dealing with some fallacies. I have some frustrations. With our country, with my people, lack of responsibility, lack of initiative for some. Oh, yeah. But unless I accept the challenge, I don't know if I can actually call myself a full-blown Christian. It's on the heart of God. So as we're standing, if we could just begin um, with a few moments of silence kind of Ask the Lord to speak to our hearts as individuals. That do we have this DNA? Have we had a defining 
moment? How good are we at normalizing compassion and not stereotyping? And on a scale of 10, how ready are we to accept the challenge? This is not judgment, this is simply an assessment so that we know how far we need to go as individuals, right? Let's just take a moment of silence. I want you to just kind of ask yourself those questions and invite the Holy Spirit to change your heart. for what he's doing. Amen. Amen, amen. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you, guys.